cast for Jean Jones, the Manhunter from Mars, his world, and the vile menagerie of villains he must confront. I'm Frank, and this is 60 Years of Martian Manhunter, 1955. Detective Comics number 225 carried a cover date of November, but the best estimate is it was actually released on September 29th, 1955. The cover featured lead story was If I Were Batman, written by Edmund Hamilton, with art by Sheldon Maldoff and Charles Paris. All three of these men were responsible for the original The Manhunter from Mars story featuring Roe Carr, first lawman of Mars, as covered in our 1953 episode, although the only actual credit offered was to Bob Kane. In story, Batman is due to be away from Gotham City for a few days at a criminologist convention in Pacific City, and for no good dang reason, everybody in town knows that Batman's going to be away. So on the one hand, a local paper is running a charity contest that allows citizens who give the most donations on a given day to serve as Batman, with the actual Robin making sure they stay out of trouble. And then, of course, the criminals of Gotham are all planning on pulling their high snow because they know Batman's not around. Hijinks ensue in a cute story. Next up was a case for Roy Raymond, TV detective, the Money That Came to Life by Jack Miller and Ruben Morera. It's worth noting that Jack Miller would eventually take over the Martian Manhunter strip. Roy Raymond had debuted nearly 100 issues earlier in Detective Comics number 153 in 1949, where he'd replaced the Slam Bradley strip. Roy Raymond shared Detective Comics with Batman, Robin, and John Jones until 1961's Detective Comics number 291. Raymond was himself replaced by Aquaman, who had a short stint in Detective Comics before moving on to other titles. Of course, they're not who we're here to talk about. Introducing John Jones, Manhunter from Mars. You've seen all sorts of detectives in action. FBI agents, private eyes, treasury men. But here, for the first time anywhere, he's the most unusual of them all. A sleuth from out of this world. Yes, straight from Mars comes a man who patrols the streets of Earth on a quest to wage war against crime. A man brought here by the strange experiment of Dr. Erdl. One night in his observatory lab, the world-famous scientist, Professor Mark Erdel, completed his greatest invention. I beat the robot brain of the century. With this invention, I can explore the cosmos, probe other dimensions. Now to test it. Eldel wasn't sure into what depths of space, time, or reality his probe would reach, so it was a stroke of luck that he merely plucked an alien being from the next planet over in the solar system, rather than call Cthulhu or something. A scantily clad, towering green male who had been teleported to the lab declared, I read your mind well, Earthman, and I understand your every thought and word. While happy the doctor's invention worked, being a scientist himself on his home world, John Jones was in a bit of a rush to return home. I am sorry. To do that, I must change the thinking plot of the brain. Since accurately recalibrating the machine could take some time, weeks or even years, Jones decided to shapeshift through his chameleon-like powers into a human form. You meant no harm. I realize that. But I must adapt myself to this planet until I return to mine, so that my appearance won't frighten others. This is easily done. It was all too much for Dr. Erdel's weak heart. On his deathbed, Jones was still promising a curative Zemo serum in exchange for a return trip, but it was no use. I am really sorry, John Jones. I am dying, and I am the only man on Earth who can operate the robot brain. I, I have made a prisoner of you here on Earth. Farewell. Forgive me. The Earth scientist is dead. Truly, as he said, I am a prisoner here on Earth. Millions of miles away, my people are working on Project Star Ride, a rocket ship that will carry them to other worlds. Till that day, the day they reach Earth, I am bound to stay here, disguised as an Earthman. How many years will it take? How many centuries? Until that day, the day of my release from Earth, I am doomed to be just another Earthman. But meanwhile, I shall explore my new planet home. The first stop was a visit to the seashore to deal with the curse of humanity. 
Gold, the greatest bartering material on Earth. By my concentration of mind over matter, I'm able to extract the gold particles from Earthian seas. Thus, this should suffice for now. Jones decided to make the most of his stranded status by taking in the sights in a literal globe-trotting exploratory trip on foot. In France, he commented on the Arch of Triumph. Mars saw its last war a thousand years ago. His observations continued on skyscrapers. Unlike on Mars, so many of the denizens here live in a small area that they build up their structures into the skies. Cars. Ancient wheeled vehicles, hundreds of them, crawling along the same streets where people walk. In another century or two, this will all be changed. And most importantly, crime. Earth is far behind Mars in many worries, but this is natural since it's a younger planet. But this evil they have, called crime, Mars once had crime. Centuries ago, until the Great Evolution, we had wicked men who preyed on the good, but our enlightened science made all crime obsolete. There seems to be much crime here, so perhaps, while I'm stranded on Earth, I can help the Earthians by fighting this crime. Yes, I think I shall do that. John Jones became John Jones, police detective, by just walking into a precinct house, and as an afterthought, the lighting of a desk attendant's cigarette introduced the final key element that defined the Silver Age Manhunter. Fire. The enemy of all Martians. I can do many things that Earthmen can't do, but I am vulnerable to flame. This is my one weakness. Much later, John Jones was introduced to his superior officer, Lieutenant Saunders, at the office of the Chief of Detectives. Lighting another cigarette, Saunders affirmed... All right, Mr. John Jones, you've qualified to become a detective. You'll be on the force tomorrow. In his private thoughts, Saunders considered, I've got a very interesting case for him to go on right away. I'm wondering just how this rookie will make out. Fairly well, I'd say. One of the calling cards for the Martian Manhunter in his early appearances, or rather John Jones's, is that he would wear a white, I don't know if he would call it a fedora, I'm not a haberdashery aficionado, um, but that sort of detective hat that people expect. White hat, black band, and then he always wore a blue suit. It was his trademark, especially in these early stories. You may have heard me struggling with the name of the doctor. It's, uh, from what I can tell, the name it can either be Turkish or Germanic. I heard a Germanic pronunciation, which I'm having trouble replicating. It's something along the lines of Edeldil, but I don't have the tongue to pull it off. As far as whether the doctor is Turkish or German in the story, it's not made clear. He has some sort of vague ethnic features, though. He has a thick, bushy unibrow and a long white mustache that juts out like an upside-down Joker grin and appears to originate inside of his nostrils. But he's fairly pasty, and he's running around in a lab coat with a sort of Colonel Sanders bow tie thingy. Who knows where he's from? I'd also like to point out that the professor is Mark Erdell, not Saul Erdell. That name, Saul Erdell, came from the 1988 Martian Manhunter miniseries and is often misattributed to the character as created in 1955. It's not the case. Now, this origin story is only six pages long, so there isn't a lot of room, but I think it's worth noting that the physical Martian form of Jean Jones appears on one of those six pages, plus cameos in a panel from a page prior and a page following. But in both those instances, it's not the clear Martian image. It's more of a Martian in transition or the impression of the Martian. The strip, as originally conceived, appears to have been about John Jones, who happened to secretly be a Martian. He wasn't a superhero. He wasn't outwardly alien. Aside from this origin tale, Mark Erdel didn't have a lot to do with the Manhunter stories in the Silver and Bronze Ages. He turns up in flashbacks, but for the most part, he served his purpose with this one tale. There are a number of elements introduced in this first story that are dropped 
almost immediately. One of the first is the notion that John Jones was a scientist on his home planet. That background would be referenced in a story or two, but in most stories you don't see John Jones tinkering with anything. Occasionally he'll bring Martian technology into stories, but he doesn't show any great aptitude in their usage or their construction. And again, this is a man who struggles for years to try to redirect Mark Erdell's robot brain. He's struggling with Earth technology. If he's a scientist, maybe he wasn't a particularly good one. The first power Martian Manhunter displays on his, upon his arrival on Earth is telepathy when he reads the Doctor's mind. Following that, he does his shape-shifting. It's 1955. I understand that this is the default status for most comic strips, but I do think it's worth looking at the fact that when John Jones came to Earth and assumed a human form, it was as a seemingly heterosexual white male of reasonably impressive height. So there is some question about his heroism. Maybe he was drawing from the ideal form in the mind of Professor Erdell. But it seems like he chose the path of least resistance, sociologically speaking. He wasn't somebody who was going to make waves. He wasn't interested in being oppressed or standing up for any minorities in this particular situation. He goes to the United States, to a major city, at the height of the American empire. And he becomes an authority figure, even though his background was as a scientist. That would be the most logical route for John Jones to take once he's stranded on Earth. But instead he becomes a detective where despite having vastly more powers than most humans, he gets to be given institutional power over humans. Troubling subtext, at least when looked upon retrospectively. It's not made clear with regard to the telepathy. John Jones says explicitly that all Martians have shape-shifting abilities, or as they're referred to here, chameleon-like powers. So it's not clear that he could become anything at this point. He may have just been able to become certain figures. To back up the scientist John Jones angle, though, the Zemo or Zymo serum, that's spelled X-Y-M-O, is located in his lab, so at least he's got one. Erdell makes a point of mentioning that he's the only man on Earth who can work the robot brain. That turned out to not be true. In later stories, several human beings, plus John Jones himself, eventually managed to work or reconstruct the robot brain. We don't know what kind of scientist John Jones was supposed to be. That's never revealed in any of the stories. But apparently he wasn't an astrophysicist because he immediately gives up on the prospect of leaving Earth through his own scientific prowess, through his own ability to command technology he assumes that his own people will eventually reach earth and that will be the way in which he is saved and returned to his home planet but again they make a point of mentioning project star ride which aside from a few mentions in the early stories never amounts to anything we never get to see project star ride come of anything unless the rocket that's seen in the 1968 story that altered the state of mars permanently perhaps that arc as it were it was star ride but it's never explicitly stated as such Something that is spelled out pretty clearly and was picked up over the years is that Martians have a greater longevity than humanity. John Jones expects to be stuck on Earth for perhaps centuries and expects that he will be saved hundreds of years from now and be able to go on with his life. It's also shown that John Jones has a somewhat dim view of humanity. He refers to himself as being doomed to be just another Earthman. There have been a lot of theories about the Silver Age Superman having contempt for humanity and demonstrating that through his geeky Clark Kent persona. But I don't recall Superman ever being quite as explicit as saying, ugh, humans, which is what John Jones does right here in his first story. Also, rather than having an actual adventure, he basically just roams around and criticizes Earth and pointing out how backward we are and kind of being an ugly American slash Martian. A key element that 
should have been a defining characteristic of the character in the strip, but was abandoned very quickly, was the notions that Mars had no crime whatsoever, which largely separates that from the Rokar story from two years earlier. Rokar mentioned that there was very little crime on Mars, but he didn't say there was an absolute lack of it, which is what John Jones is trying to assert here. But it's important to remember that in 1955, there really wasn't a DC universe. The Martian Manor strip at this point in time existed in its own continuity from the rest of the DC strips. If you have to remember that DC wasn't one house, it was a number of different publishing groups that slowly merged together. One of the main places where you saw a lot of interaction was at All American Comics, which published the Justice Society strips and the related characters who would intermingle with one another. But with the exception of Wonder Woman, all those strips had been discontinued by the mid-1950s. So Wonder Woman didn't interact with Superman, Batman didn't interact with Aquaman, everybody was separate with the exception of Superman, Batman, and Robin because they all three co-starred in the World's Finest book, which was edited by the same editor as Detective Comics, Jack Schiff, and all three characters had always been published by National Periodical Publications, the core company within what became DC Comics. So it didn't matter that Rokar in a Batman strip had set up one version of Mars because at this point in time, the Marsh Manhunter would have had nothing to do with Batman even though they were appearing in the same book under the same editor. The fact was that within a few issues, crime would be manifest on Mars and would be treated as matter of fact, not an uncommon occurrence at all. And as far as war goes, war had apparently been abolished by Mars a thousand years prior, but within a few years, a global conflict would be consuming that planet and would in fact affect a retcon to the origin of the Martian Manhunter so that he was not only aware of the war, but was a key player in that war. All later Marsh Manor stories counteract that element of the story. So while it would have been interesting to see that played out, it was abandoned so quickly that it's hardly even worth mentioning. This is the story that's meant to define this character. And he gives us a big speech about the Great Evolution, this major sea change in Martian culture that eradicated essentially evil, crime, war, what have you, from Martian culture. That, again, has never been mentioned in any other Martian Manhunter stories. It seems like, especially being in this origin story, that that should have been something that would have come up, but it's never been brought up again. John Jones displays seven unique superpowers in this origin story. Mind reading, chameleon metamorphosis, Mind over matter, goal detection and extraction, however you define that, rapid global exploration, how he manages to get from the United States to France in the matter of a walking trip isn't made clear at this time, or ever really. Number six was invisible form, and number seven was molecular attunement, which means that he could become immaterial objects would pass through him. Even though John Jones didn't have the trappings of a superhero at this point in time and wouldn't for a while to come, they certainly loaded him up with abilities. He had an enormous amount of abilities right from the get-go, which I imagine is why they made sure in the last few panels to really drive home the point that he had this incredible vulnerability to flame, which would play out throughout the pretty much throughout the character's history, but especially in the Silver Age Adventures. He wasn't Superman. He had a very easy, very convenient off switch. As powerful as he may have been, literally anybody with a match could put a stop to much of his abilities. This story introduced Lieutenant Saunders, who would appear to be the Commissioner Gordon for this trip. However, the Saunders character was essentially written out of the book or morphed into another character, Captain Harding, after a few appearances. The differences between Lieutenant Saunders and Captain Harding are something we can talk about in the future. 
whether or not they were the same character or Lieutenant Saunders went off somewhere and was never discussed again. As forest origin stories go, this one wasn't the best. I know that six pages isn't a lot of room to tell an origin story, but the fact remains that an origin story really isn't told here. It's only half of a story. There's no real conflict. There's no adversary. There's no backstory really for John Jones. He just sort of pops up out of nowhere. He does say that he's a scientist. You do get a sense of who the character is. It's interesting that he would choose to become a detective, though, beyond the fact that he appears in detective comics. Why that particular choice? He's very much a dilettante, especially in the early stories. The mysteries he solves are very much dependent upon him using his powers rather than any actual detective skill. Often when the story is reprinted, it's paired with the tale from the following issue, The Case of the Magic Baseball, which is also not that great of a story and it doesn't couple very well, but taking the story on its own, it's very unsatisfying. A few months back on the Marvel Superheroes podcast, we recorded a Howard the Duck movie commentary. At the same time, I was prepping to start this podcast. It was weird to me to realize that the origin for Howard the Duck in his movie is essentially the same as Martian Manhunter with the exception that Howard had an adversary and he did interact with his world in a way that was more interesting and in the Brightest Day retcon from a few years back when they introduced the character Decay Draz she takes on the role of the Dark Lord of the Universe. Now, this first story is credited to Joe Samichson and Joe Serta, but I've often seen Mort Weisinger, the editor, in the mix as far as uh, crediting for creating The Martian Manhunter. One of the key sources, by my reckoning, is Gerard Jones and Will Jacobs' The Comic Book Heroes, because Jones had access to the editor, Jack Schiff, and was able to ask him questions that nobody had ever bothered to ask anybody, apparently, before, since there's such a shoddy history related to The Martian Manhunter. So I'm not sure, even though DC has decided to just go ahead and credit Samichson and Serta fully with the creation of The Martian Manhunter, I wonder how much of a role Mort Weisinger played in that, especially because the story reads almost like Checkmark are being placed in boxes like the writer was tasked with setting up a scenario but somewhat half-heartedly I still think that Samerson brought a lot to the character that could have played out and made the character more interesting or given him a stronger sense of direction which he lacked when other writers took over the strip there's also this sense of, of a lack of commitment to the concept there's a lack of drive in the story itself so I just I wonder how much of a role Samerson had how much of a role Weisinger played and then of course the the design of the characters gets muddied up because of the existence of Rokar and the Martians from the Manhunter from Mars story from 1953. So even Serta's creation is somewhat vague, but that's what DC goes with. Everybody involved with the creation is dead at this point, and nobody was going to bother to ask questions about the Martian Manhunter even 20 years ago. The character was just too minor. Hey, take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. The only other Martian Manhunter comic book with a 1955 cover date was Detective Comics number 226, the December issue. Detective Jones's first recorded assignment saw him track four crooks who were holed up in a barred room. John Jones snuck in using the simple Martian procedure of attuning the molecules of his body to those of a solid wall and walking right through. Although he captured three of the thugs right off the bat, Jones had a tougher time with Trigger Tom Taylor, but still brought in his man. Returning to the precinct, Jones heard the story of Big Bob Michaels from his lieutenant. After serving a prison term, Big Bob went straight pitching for the minor leagues. The major leagues were looking to scout him, but a shady past potentially haunting him could blow his chances. Clearly a bygone era. 
Jones was asked to watch over Michaels and soon learned through telepathy that Big Bob's former pals were blackmailing him. They wanted him to throw his first game with the Flamingos against the Wonders, or they would expose him to the press. Jones then used his powers of precognition for the first time. I see the end of the game tomorrow. Michaels would win it one to nothing with a home run in the ninth if those crooks weren't molesting him. Wouldn't that mean Jones would see Michaels lose the game since he pierced the veil of time after the harassment began? Jones wasn't content to simply ask what if. Like Jack Webb auditioning for the Michael Landon role in Highway to Heaven, Jones busted with divine intervention from an unusual source. Now we'll see what happens when I use a little Martian molecular hypnosis. A real slow ball is what? Let's see how the crowd reacts to this one. Martian mind over matter. The way most folks react to a no-hitter, I'd guess. I wonder if Jones used a Martian booking agent on the slide. It's time to make the game exciting. With a 0-0 score, a run would perk things up. Michaels is at bat, so here goes a little more mind over matter. Enough for the dang Martian ringer already. Even after Michaels sent the ball straight to the catcher, Jones covered his butt. Was this guy kissing up to his lieutenant or what? No wonder he made detective so fast. And Invisible Jones eventually set up the three mobsters who had plans to punish Big Bob for his unearned game. The detective arrested the Devon mob, collected compliments from his commanding officer, and just maybe even collected his winnings from a bookie-off panel? The case of the Magic Baseball was written by Joe Samichson and drawn by Joe Serta. Now for those keeping score, we've added two new powers to the Martian Manhunter's abilities, peering into the future, and molecular hypnosis. I'm an old school geek, so I have the natural aversion to any sports-related stories, but it's still really lame that the first Martian Manhunter tale is playing around with a baseball using telekinesis. It's cheesy your ego betrays you will you not listen to reason this won't end well for you we received retweets from Ange, between the pages eternal rage mark burkhart martin gray and ryan c at trash film guru favorites came from count druncula eel perrin eternal rage the irredeemable shag Longbox graveyard ciscoid and the top five road crew count druncula wrote Check out the first episode of At Commander Blanks' Idlehead of Diablo podcast, celebrating 60 years of John Jones. Check out the Despero Spotlight on the latest Idlehead of Diablo Martian Manhunter podcast. Then he said, Great episode, Frank. I love a nice spotlight or recap podcast that's 20 minutes or less. They're great for listening to, to while I'm in the shower and getting dressed in the morning. And aren't you grateful for that bit of unsolicited imagery? I, too, would much rather see Despero, Starro, or Mongol as the villains of the Justice League movies rather than Brainiac or Darkseid. An intellectual villain putting the heroes through their paces and rigging battles in his favor would be a nice change from what we typically see in superhero movies. Maybe we'll see that from Ultron, but I doubt it. More likely, I'll have to cross my fingers for X-Men Arcade in 2021. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. But no, I'm, I'm glad Count Dracula likes the length of the podcast. I really want to keep this one as short as I can. We're already doing a, a weekly podcast on the Marvel superheroes. There's a lot of editing involved with that. And honestly, this is this podcast is so niche. It's so particular to the interest of myself and a few people who give a crap about John Jones that I don't want to overindulge. But yes, I would love to see some more intellectual villains in these superhero movies. There's just been this tendency for bigger, badder, video game type smash bash type characters in those type of movies and you can only see that so many times i think possibly one of the reasons why loki has been so firmly embraced is because at least there's some manipulation going on there and of course the dark knight is generally considered the best of the batman movies in part because they had the joker pull some riddler action and, and outsmarting people it's great to see the machinations martin gray writes this is what we've all been waiting for has it been broadcast on the middletown radio station and I just have to say thank you for using the term Middletown, not Middleton. 
uh, and God help us, not Apex City. Middletown is the name of the city that Detective John Jones patrols. It was fairly late in the run before the city was actually given a name. It was just the generic city that Marshman had worked out of. Darwin Cook in the New Frontier took advantage of that and placed the Marshman Hunter in Gotham City. Unfortunately, there's been a tendency to favor the post-crisis notion of Middleton, Colorado, which is actually a ghost town. Literally, it doesn't exist anymore. It's just a spot on a map. And to me, it's endemic of the tendency toward forgetting that the Marsh Manor has a past. This tendency to just assume that the Manhunter was created in the Bronze Age or later. There's so much more material to work with that's essentially been forgotten and largely has gone unused by creators. I think that that very much limits the character because if you don't look at a character's whole history, and I'm referring to any character... You're missing out on the opportunity to rediscover gems that have been forgotten that can fuel new stories. You have characters that are created before their time or could be adjusted to our modern times to speak to us in ways that the latest permutation of a Brainiac or Lex Luthor story can't. And the fact is, the Marsh Manor has a rogues gallery. You don't just have to throw random Bronze Age villains like Libra at him because he's got his own guys that I'd love to see come back again. And that's one of the things that was a hallmark of my blog when I was running it was that I wanted to focus on the supporting cast and the villains that the Marsh Manor fought. And I want to see that carried forward into this podcast. You're going to hear a lot about Marshman's villains here. That's why we started out with Despero, which admittedly is somewhat of a contradiction since that was a character that was not created to be a Marshman villain, but at least that's one of the few villains that exists that people associate with the Martian Manhunter and has been a reoccurring foe specific to the Manhunter beyond his role as a Justice League villain. Eternal Rage writes, unfamiliar with Despero, only privy to his modern appearances, sparse as they are. Very strong, valid point to have him appear on the big screen. He could be a big-time player with the proper script and backing. He's become a very imposing character and really larger than life. As a character that could be shaped and origin slightly changed if needed for lack of fan following. I'd like to see him more fleshed out in comics as well. Give him some room to grow within a current series, only because I don't think he could survive on his own without support from a well-known. Well, I actually gave Eternal Rage some pointers on stories to look into, specifically the Justice League Detroit era story arc from, I believe, 1986, where they did alter Despero's origins, somewhat for the better, somewhat for the worse, and they changed his design to the one that's more familiar to modern readers, but it was a little bit different in 86, and we'll talk about that once we get to those stories, but I definitely recommend that. I think it's one of the best Justice League stories. Also, one of the most popular and beloved stories, much championed, is the Despero arc from the Justice League International era, the one where he shows up naked wearing the... United Nations flag. After the recommendations, Eternal Rage wrote, I'll have to search on that a bit. I'd like to read up on the character. There's so much DC I've missed over the years. He did point out that he's read Rebels, but didn't remember a strong presence from Despero and would have to reread those. And I pointed out that Despero really didn't have a strong presence in Rebels. He was sort of tacked on, just another alien in the mix. Uh, the podcast, he wrote, I enjoy it. I find the link of these very well paced. I like to think of it as story time with Frank. Well done. He suggested the name Martian Morphing Male for this segment. Will in Chicago said, I would prefer a League villain with maybe a build up to Darkseid and a team of the League with the new gods in a fight for existence itself, which sounds a lot like the JLA JSA team up that first brought the new gods back into mainstream DC continuity from the early 80s. Will continues, Despero could conceivably manipulate Starro, then be shown as the real mastermind. Despero, like John, shows that DC has a wealth of unmined material. I think that if there were writers who knew and cared about the history of the characters, we would get much better stories. 
And wrote, my first encounter with Despero was in JLA 177 and 178, a riff on the classic chess game Despero story. I didn't even know about Despero's history at the time. I prefer the original over the hulking pink Savage Dragon version myself. And like you, I think he would be an interesting villain for the JLA in their movie. But my sense is DC wants to go with more commonly known villains. Lex is easy. Lastly, there are some Supergirl moments with him. She completely clocks him in JLA number 134. And it is while battling Despero and Peter David's Supergirl number 17 and 18 that she first manifests her flame wings, angel powers. Great show. I have read the JLA story featuring Supergirl where Despero appears in the 1970s. And we'll be covering that probably sooner rather than later if we continue to do Despero coverage as intended. I totally agree that Warner Brothers seems to be focusing on the more recognizable villains that have already appeared in their animation and video games and such. It's not the worst strategy. It's just that it's harder to have those happy accidents of a popular character coming somewhat out of nowhere, Loki being a good example, if you just stick to the same old, same old, the safe options. And also, anybody who hasn't read Peter David's Supergirl run, highly recommend it. The first 50 issues are spectacular. I'm I'm a big fan of those. I think the book very much lost its momentum after that 50th issue. I think that David was trying to do with Supergirl what he had done with The Incredible Hulk, where he would have these massive shifts in direction, which works great for a character like the Hulk who needs to keep things fresh and who has built into his premise that need to transform, to change radically, to go to extremes. With Supergirl, I think that he figured out, perhaps for one of the first times in that character's history, how to present the character to a wide audience and differentiate her from Superman, she was the magical Supergirl, the Earth Angel, and she tended to fight more supernatural villains, and she tended to appear in somewhat darker stories than would necessarily be allowed for with Superman, and to have a greater ambiguity of her own alignment without ever feeling compromised and feeling like she was anything less than a good person and a great heroine. And so when David felt the need to turn her into the Superman Adventures version of Supergirl, which was a much different character from the one that he had been writing, it just didn't feel true. It felt very arbitrary to me as a reader of that time. And then by the time he reached 75 and was bringing in a Kara Zor-El alike, felt like he didn't know where he was going or he was just going in place to places that I personally wasn't interested in. And based on the loss in readership and eventual cancellation, I think it was pretty commonly held. Darcy writes, Interesting take on the Despero character. You make him sound like John Galt in Atlas Shrugged. Are you familiar with H.G. Wells' 1904 story, The Country of the Blind? In it, the blind people believe that having functional eyes has driven their visitor mad. Sounds a bit like the Kalinorians. Thanks. Based on your commentary on the H.G. Wells story, which I'm not familiar with, I can kind of see where you're going with John Galt, but I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around the parallels between Galt and Despero. From the comments you've made here and on the Marvel Superheroes podcast, you're a lot better read than I am. So I'm just going to defer to you on this one because, uh, yeah, (laughs) you're going over my head. But it was a great comment. Finally, Count Druncula wrote, Never thought of Despero's name in relation to Desperado, but now I've got that song stuck in my head. Ange added, Why don't you come to your senses? And Count Druncula, hashtag so much hate right now. Feel free to leave a comment. Our blog is at the idlehead of diablo.blogspot.com. Although if you put in the word idlehead or Diablo, typically that blog is the first result. You can also go to uh, Rollspine Podcast, the WordPress account, which is great if you don't want to have to log in. Anybody can comment there. And of course, there's my Twitter account at Commander Blanks, all of which is linked through the blog. So if you can find one, you can typically find the other through that. Thanks, everybody.
Erdöl, 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 Erdöl.